0: It was Thanksgiving Eve 1987, and after visiting her daughter at Wyckoff Hospital in Queens, Maureen Fernandez went to a few of her usual bars with a man who was unfamiliar to the other bar patrons. The next morning, her body was found in an empty lot next to a stretch of the Long Island Railroad. She had been stabbed 35 times. Investigators spoke with the bar patrons and a night watchman near the empty lot who described a white Cadillac-type car leaving the lot at 4 a.m. The detectives began looking into people who worked at the hospital, and it turned out that a security guard named Javier Ramos owned a white Oldsmobile. Detectives leaned hard on Ramos, extracting a confession about lending his car to a friend named Richard Pereira. Ramos claimed Pereira had returned the vehicle with a mysterious red liquid on the passenger's side and admitted to the murder before Ramos thoroughly cleaned the car. When Pereira was cleared in a lineup, police arranged for Pereira to record a conversation with Ramos, who admits to making up the story, even admitting that his car battery was dead the night of the murder. But instead of switching directions, the cops interrogate Ramos again extracting the same story with a new suspect, Felipe Rodriguez. Without the Pereira recording being presented at trial, Felipe ended up spending over 26 years in prison after being identified by a man who knew nothing about the murder of a woman who Felipe had never even met. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. welcome back to wrongful conviction with jason flom that's me i'm your host and today i am well you can probably hear i'm excited because we have not one but two of my favorite human beings on the show today first nina morrison is the senior litigation attorney at the innocence project in new york and just an all-around certified badass lawyer human mom person (laughs) Uh, friend and so nina i'm really excited to have you back on welcome
3: thanks jason great to be back
0: and now in our tradition of saving the best for last we have one of the kindest gentlest funniest and best dressed humans that you're ever going to come across so felipe rodriguez welcome to wrongful conviction
5: thank you jason i appreciate it felipe let's start in the beginning you grew up in puerto rico right Yes, I was born in Ponce, Puerto Rico on August 15, 1965.
0: And you came to New York at what time?
5: I actually came to New York with my mother and my stepfather, late 70s. I was like 13 or 14 years old.
0: Can you just describe to us what your life was like before this incident in
5: 1987? In 1985, I actually got married to my now ex-wife, Gladys Rodriguez. And I had a kid with her, uh, Felipe William Rodriguez Jr. He was born on July 2nd, 1986. By 86, I started working for a subcontracting company for the city of New York. I was getting paid good. I had good health care. So I was doing pretty well for myself.
0: And then you were... Implicated in a murder that you had absolutely nothing to do with. And this particular murder was really gruesome. Nina, can you take us back to the crime itself and how they came? to sort of, I'm gonna say settle, because they settled on Felipe.
3: Yeah, Felipe wasn't arrested and charged for this crime until 16 months after the victim in this case, Maureen Fernandez, was murdered. As you mentioned, it was an extraordinarily brutal crime. She was stabbed 35 times and her body was found in a deserted lot in Queens, New York, near the Long Island Railroad tracks behind a food warehouse. Her body was actually found on Thanksgiving morning. She had been at a local hospital visiting her two-year-old daughter who was in the hospital the night before, went out to a bar with a man that the other bar patrons didn't recognize, but it was a bar that she went to with some frequency, left there around two in the morning and was never seen again. You know, we get a lot of cases, Jason, where there's some reasonable evidence pointing to our clients as a suspect and then later through DNA or further investigation or advanced science, some other evidence we find, the picture changes. And when we at the Innocence Project took on Felipe's case, it was just so clear that this investigation was pointing far away from Felipe for the beginning. And eventually, 16 months later, when they had no viable suspect, the police just decided to coerce witnesses and charge Felipe.
0: The police had the description of the most likely culprit from the bar patrons, right?
3: You know, the thing that was so obvious was that the man who was with the victim, Ms. Fernandez, at the bar did not remotely resemble Felipe. Felipe, as your guests can see if they Google him, is a tall, slender, very dark-haired, handsome man of Puerto Rican descent. And yet the man at the bar, who was the last person to come to the bar with and leave with the victim, the obvious likely suspect, was described by witnesses as white or Italian, clean-shaven, Felipe had a black mustache, stocky, which Felipe definitely is not and never was, and had reddish-brown hair. Um, With hazel eyes. I mean, the list goes on
0: and on. One of the patrons at the bar, Robert Thompson, who was heavily intoxicated, said that he had tried to sell a watch to Maureen Fernandez and the man she was with. And then this uh, Thompson described the potential perpetrator's hands as large uncalloused and wearing rings. Then later on, he sort of agreed with the detectives that the man may have had writing on his left hand. Again, you wouldn't want to hang a murder conviction on this. And then there's this Peter Saloni guy. He was a night watchman at the food wholesaler near the empty lot where the body was found. And he told police that he witnessed a white car with a lone male driver leaving the warehouse area at 4 a.m. Now, he said the car may have been a 1980s era Cadillac
3: there wasn't really any evidence that anybody's white car was necessarily the car used in this crime. The security guard thought he saw a white car with a lone driver leaving the warehouse area around 4 a.m. No one knows what time Ms. Fernandez was brought there or when she was killed. There were different reports about when she left the bar. And originally, the investigation focused on a black car, which had a much closer connection to the crime, because several witnesses described seeing an unfamiliar shiny black Monte Carlo with tinted windows outside the bar. And people started suggesting to police that maybe the perpetrator drove her to and from the bar in that car. And it was only when six, eight months later the case remained unsolved that suddenly a new detective on the case, Jack Beisel said, Oh, well maybe, maybe it was the white car seen by the security guard. And from that little read of a hypothesis they reverse engineered a case designed to find anyone they could with a connection to Wyckoff Hospital who happened to have a white car of that general description.
0: So the detectives began looking at the staff of the hospital that this poor woman had been visiting her sick child at, the pediatric ward, because people were saying around the neighborhood that it was like a pickup spot, which is bizarre in itself, but okay. So the detectives started talking about the staff... And there was a security guard named Javier Ramos who had a white Oldsmobile at the time of the murder, not a Cadillac. But he had gotten off work at the hospital at midnight on the night of the murder. And a few months later, in February or March of 1988... Ramos had sold the Oldsmobile to another staffer, a guy named Pedro Sierra, and he had painted the roof of the Oldsmobile red. And Saloni, the night watchman guy, was taken to the area where the car formerly owned by Ramos was parked.
3: They drove him around the block, past it several times, and he didn't pick it out. And then Bysel finally says to him, or the detective said to him, Hey, if that car didn't have a red roof, could it have been the car? And he said, probably, maybe like an eight out of 10. So that's not exactly an unbiased, spontaneous identification of the car. It's about as suggestive and equivocal as you get.
0: And then Detective Beisel aggressively interrogated and intimidated, I would say, Ramos for hours and hours. And... Finally, the interrogation ended when Ramos told the story that they wanted to hear. And he signed a statement, not implicating Felipe, but a friend and coworker named Richard Pereira.
3: Ramos's original story implicating Pereira said Pereira borrowed the car, brought it back on Thanksgiving morning. There was a reddish stain in the car. It smelled terrible. And that Pereira allegedly said to him that he had to stab some bitch to show her that he was a man and not some boy. So essentially admitted to a murder. And it was a very damning statement. The problem is it was completely made up. The police bring in Richie. We don't know the full extent of the investigation they did, but we know that he was not picked out of a lineup by any of the eyewitnesses from the bar or by the security guard. And for that or for other reasons, they decided Ramos had given them the wrong guy. So they go back to Ramos and they work him over and they work him over. But before they do that, they go to Pereira and they say, hey, Ramos, implicated you. We think Ramos might be the killer. Can you wear a wire and go talk to him? Now none of this was heard by Felipe's jury. This didn't come out till after he was convicted. But Ramos was taped by Pereira, the man he'd falsely implicated, essentially admitting he made up the whole story. And on this audio tape that none of the jurors ever heard, Ramos said, Look, the cops were coming at me and coming at me. It was gonna be me or you and I had to give them somebody or else I was going to go to prison for the rest of my life. And then he said, my car wasn't even working that day. The battery was dead. And there was no blood on the cushion. That was juice that my girlfriend's kid spilled there. He admitted the whole thing was fabricated, not just naming Pereira, but the whole entire story. And Felipe's jury never heard that. What they did hear at Felipe's trial was that Ramos gave another version of that statement implicating Felipe. The only two differences in that statement were one, and most importantly, he switched the names. So he gave the exact same statement, but he said, oh, it was actually Felipe Rodriguez who brought the car back to me that morning and said all these terrible things, not Richie Pereira. Okay, so to believe he's telling the truth, you have to believe he implicated one innocent man to protect another man, Felipe Rodriguez, not exactly the most reliable witness in the world. In addition, another thing that always jumped out at us is that Ramos said in his second statement that he cleaned the car himself. In his first statement, the false one implicating Richie Pereira, he said that his grandfather helped him clean the car. And suddenly in the second statement, the grandfather disappears. Grandfather never testifies at trial. And to this day, we have never seen a single piece of paper indicating whether the police ever talked to the grandfather. And, you know, Jason, I probably don't need to connect the dots for your very... (laughs) crime savvy listeners, or even the ones who aren't, right? Like the first thing you would do as a rookie cop, if somebody says, oh, I cleaned blood off of a vehicle that was used in a grisly murder, and this person helped me, is you'd go find that person and interview them and see if they corroborate or contradict what this witness has just told you. And the fact that there is no record of them talking to the grandfather, along with the fact that we now know Ramos made it all up, leads me to the conclusion that the police absolutely talked to him and they, he told them my grandson's full of you know what I never went near a stinky bloody car or else I would have called the cops. So they took that detail out of the second statement but everything else he subbed one name for another and in the second statement he subbed in an innocent man who did 27 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit.
5: Felipe, had you even heard about it? When they came to me, that was the first I heard it, and I was shocked as hell.
3: So
0: they put Felipe in a live lineup, and they brought in several of the people from the bar, and none of them identified Felipe except for the one guy who had admitted that he was you know, drunk as a skunk that night. And you would have to be drunk as a skunk to mix up a guy who's described as Italian, 5'8 with reddish brown hair and chunky to, with a guy who's slender, 5'11, jet black hair and a mustache. But with Ramos's statement and Thompson's identification, that they felt was enough to indict Felipe for murder. You know,
5: I was truly, truly baffled of why me?
0: Felipe also passed a polygraph denying his involvement and was released on bail pre-trial, which, again, gives me some indication that they didn't think he was that dangerous or they wouldn't have sent him back to the neighborhood. And then there was the issue with the trial itself, right? So originally, Felipe was represented by Kenneth Litwack, but then replaced by an attorney named Jennifer Maiolo.
3: As we later found out, she was defending Felipe with one hand tied behind her back because there was a lot of evidence of his innocence that she never got. Some of the best lawyers in the world will lose trials when the prosecution doesn't play fair and the police don't play fair and they don't get all the evidence that they're entitled to get.
0: And that was exactly the situation that was happening here. In April 1990, your trial was held in the Queens County Supreme Court. And I know that Ramos repeated his false narrative about lending his car to Felipe. And he said that he had delayed reporting the crime and initially shifted the blame to Pereira because Felipe was, quote, like a brother to me. I mean, the whole thing stinks.
3: As you know, many jurors, when they show up for jury duty, assume that the police have it right, that the person who's charged with the crime wouldn't be sitting there if they weren't guilty. And despite the legal burden of innocent until proven guilty, in reality, it's often just the opposite. where Jurors assume the person is guilty. And if there's any evidence to support that conclusion, they often latch on to that evidence. And so I can see a world where a man who represents himself to be a close friend of Felipe's claims to be like a brother to him comes in and says, I didn't want to turn him in, but I had to because it was the right thing to do. Never mind that he implicated another admittedly innocent person in between might give them what they need, or they might have been swayed by just the horrible, gory nature of the crime and not want to let it go unsolved.
0: So the prosecution calls these two witnesses that claim to have seen the writing on Felipe's hands in the past. This this also seems just so dicey.
3: You know, it's a sign of how thin the case was that they're relying on things like a witness 20 months later who says she thought she saw something written on Felipe's hands that happens to match something that another drunk witness said 10 months after the crime that he thought he saw written on Felipe's hand. And that's really emblematic of just how weak a case this was. But um, and the other key piece of it was that the police witnesses testified really to back up the whole theory about the white car. You know, the prosecution was allowed to walk detectives by cell and Sullivan through the investigation. Oh, and also they had the bartender who had initially not picked Felipe out of a lineup, came into court and said, oh, yeah, that's the guy. And between the white car, Ramos's testimony, some of the other incredibly shaky IDs, and some dubious testimony about writing and things Felipe allegedly said. And that was enough to send this man away for what could have been the rest
5: of his life.
0: Felipe was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison.
5: When they said that they had found me guilty of murder in the second degree, my knees buckled, man. I um, put both of my hands on the table and I just... It was a rough day, man. It was um, at that time I was married to Loida Castanero, and all I heard was her screams. It was like a scream when somebody dies. Uh, and then the judge said, uh, "You're remanded," and uh, he told the officer to take me to custody. And uh, that's what the whole nightmare began.
0: This episode is brought to you by Stand Together. Stand Together is a philanthropic community dedicated to helping people improve their lives. For more than 20 years, Stand Together and its partners have been on the front lines of criminal justice reform. By empowering people to take action, supporting nonprofits, and working with businesses, Stand Together tackles the root causes of problems in our communities and empowers those closest to the problems to drive solutions. Solutions like reducing unjust prison sentences through the First Step Act, empowering community-based programs that help people reenter society, and now working to bridge divides in our communities. To learn how you may get involved, visit standtogether.org/conviction.
5: I was 23 Twenty-four. One of the first maximum security prisons that I arrived at was Great Meadows Correctional Facility, better known as Gladiator School or Comstock. There I seen the violence, uh, the homosexuality, the drugs, the gangs. And I said, how can I pull myself out of this dungeon safely and return to my son? So the first few months were crucial. I prayed a lot. I cried a lot. It was nice when, you know, I put myself to sleep crying, thinking about my son and, you know, who was being there for him. I was angry. Of course, I was angry. I was angry at the system. I was angry that I was thrown in prison for 25 to life for something that I haven't done. And I was completely confused on how I was going to solve this mystery. But quickly, I understood that in order for me to think clearly, in order for me to see things for where they were, I needed to forgive everybody. I needed to take all hatred, I needed to take all resentment, and I needed to get that out of my system so that I, I won't get more hurt than what I was already. Because, you know, most people don't understand hatred, resentment, all that does, it hurts you. It doesn't hurt the person you're angry at because the person you're angry at is actually in the house sleeping or having fun with their family while you are stewing in all this madness. So very early in my incarceration, I got rid of all that. And I devoted myself to giving thanks to God for me being healthy and alive and asking him to protect my son. And I started learning and reading every book i could get my hands on. And uh, it was a hell of a quest for sure.
0: I can't picture you in this gladiator school, but you turned it into a positivity. But then there was still so much more to come, right? And we're going to go quickly through the proceedings in the early 90s.
3: Felipe got appointed some terrific lawyers from the Legal Aid Society for his initial round of appeals right after his conviction.
0: Right. And this is Martin Lucente, of course, of the Legal Aid Society. We're talking about a a very, very talented lawyer.
3: And they very quickly, through some catching a reference to it in another report, discovered that this tape of the lead witness against Felipe Javier Ramos existed was in the state's possession and had never been turned over. So they got a copy of the tape in which Ramos admits to making up the whole story about the car and the bloodstains and his car having a dead battery, and they go to a hearing. And as we've seen so many times, when you go to a hearing with a claim that the prosecution withheld evidence you're supposed to have, it's a very hard claim to win because the prosecutor will often come in and say, well, I turned it over. I handed it to the defense lawyer. I gave it to her. And that's exactly what he said here. And at the end of the day, the judge's decision denying Felipe a new trial didn't say this wasn't significant evidence. He never says, oh, well, this wouldn't have made a difference anyway. It was so obvious how important it is. He says, I find that there's not enough proof or evidence that it wasn't disclosed. I'm not going to call the prosecutor a liar. So essentially, he's saying that maybe Felipe's trial lawyer missed it. But, you know, she was cross-examining Ramos pretty hard. It's something that would have been almost impossible to miss if she'd had this kind of ammo to cross-examine him further about making it up. So he lost that round, but it was still more evidence that by the time the Innocence Project took the case, was on record further undermining this already incredibly tenuous conviction.
0: So none of these initial uh, motions or appeals led to the result that they should have, which is, of course, for Felipe to come home. And then it comes to 2001 when, Felipe, you wrote to the Innocence
5: Project. They sent me a letter. They said, look, we have a lot of requests. And right now, you know, we only have a certain amount of staff. So we will take a look at it. We'll let you know. And, but then I was transferred to Sullivan. And in Sullivan, I met Father Bona, who became my mentor. I really got immersed into the Catholic religion, and and I started serving the EMA population. I became a chaplain's aide and a chaplain kirk, a Eucharistic minister. I was in charge of the entire mass, and I was also in charge of the prayer nights, the Bible studies. You know, we started a formation class that allowed people to become secular Franciscans, which I am today. And I forgot about the Innocence Project. I, I just, you know, I, I left it up to God. And and then I started working with a serial killer. His name is Arthur John Shokros. He was a satanic worshiper. And everybody hated him in the prison, actually. One day I came from formation class on a Sunday after mass. And I was sitting at my table with two of the chairs empty and Mr. Shokros, may he rest in peace, was sitting on the floor because nobody wanted him on their tables. And I felt so hypocritical. I felt like here I am teaching Bible study and holding mass. and, And I have a guy that's sitting on the stairs eating his food because people think that they are better than him. I said, who am I to judge this guy? Or what saying do I have in saying that this guy is redeemable or not redeemable? That's not up to me. That's not up to any human being on this earth. That's up to God, whatever we want to call God. So I got up from my table and I went up to Short Cross and I said, come on, man, sit on the table. So he came up, he sat on the table. I said, as long as I'm in this prison, you sit in this table with me. And whoever has a problem with it, I'll take care of it. He said, why? Why are you doing that? I said, everybody deserves a little bit of humanity. I'm not here to deprive you of that. I've been deprived of that myself, so I'm not going to deprive you of that." And From that day, he started asking me questions about religion and what I believe and why I didn't believe. And One day he came out and he said, "Um, what would you do if I wanted to go to church? you think they allow me in church? I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you come Sunday to mass with me? If you don't like it, you don't ever have to come again and nobody's going to judge you or whatever. And he said, are you sure, people? I said, listen, I'm sure God would love to have you in His house. And he said, okay. That day was the greatest day for me. I got blessed by God. Uh, For me, it was the best letter I've ever received. Nina Morrison was assigned to my case. From there, Nina became my guardian angel. I don't think there's ever gonna be a woman more important to me, aside from my mother than Nina Morrison. And I'm married and I love Karen, but I'ma tell you, and I told Karen a hundred times, and you could ask and she could tell you. If Nina called me from China today and told me that she needed me over there, Karen will stay here and i go to China because that's just the way it's gonna be. This is where the Innocence Project stands with me.
0: Nina takes a case. And the physical evidence had been destroyed. There was almost nothing left to go on.
3: Felipe's case for a few years in our office was literally hanging by some hairs because the hairs were among the few things we hadn't found yet. We actually managed with the help of a pretty diligent newer prosecutor in the DA's office, Eric Rosenbaum, track down some of the hairs. And then Hurricane Sandy hit and they lost them again. And we had to wait another 18 months And after that testing and some testings we found on some biological material left over from the car, yielded no DNA that was of any use to the investigation. The hairs were all from the victim herself. The cuttings from the car didn't yield a thing. No blood, no nothing. We were kind of stuck.
0: You know, it would have been at that point not an illogical thing for someone in Nina's position to say, well, you know, like we would love to help you, but we just don't have what we need. But that's not how this rolled out.
3: I used to joke in the office that we could have a TV show, you know, like the old show, Everybody Loves Raymond, called Everybody Loves Felipe. Because (laughs) if I so much as suggested that we might close his case, I was going to have five law students in my office telling me I was insane or worse. So we just kind of kept it open. So I brought in my old law school classmate, Zach margulies Anima to do some work with me on the case and lighten the load so I could justify keeping Felipe's file open. And then in the fall of 2016, we started to think we might be able to get Felipe out of prison another way. Not a prison break. <laughs> uh, although
0: I, I think that had this failed, that probably would have been Nina in a helicopter and you know, lowering down a I ladder.
3: Take a on that one, I have no plans uh, to commit any prison breaks, nor have I, I, I ever
0: have, made uh, any such uh, I'm glad it didn't come to that. So the next and only probably remaining option was gubernatorial clemency.
3: So we actually got a call in our office, the Innocence Project, from one of the lawyers in Governor Cuomo's office in New York saying that they were actively soliciting clemency applications from people who had, I think what they called exemplary prison records. So people who had done very well inside and had proven that they would be no threat to anyone on the outside. And of course, it helps if you have a lot of evidence that they're innocent. And you know, many of our innocent clients, they're they're in the middle of a hellscape nightmare. Get into some fights, get into drugs, get into all kinds of things just to survive. And you know, who among us can judge who has never spent a night in one of those places? But Felipe and a few of our other clients had managed to have really truly extraordinary records inside of community service, peacefulness, uh, the respect and trust of the staff and the COs. And so it was pretty obvious that Felipe would be one of the people who we would want to put forward. But when I went to go talk to Felipe about it, he said. Well, it's not an exoneration.
0: And Felipe, before you get into that, as the man of of principle that you are, you had refused to go in front of the parole board because of the fact that they were expecting or even insisting that you were going to admit guilt and remorse for a crime you didn't commit. So you had made a conscious decision that you would rather stay in prison than tell a lie and admit to something you didn't do.
5: When they told me that I was up for parole, I told the of security at the time Peter Early he came to see me said listen you are for parole you know i'm going to i want to give you a letter of commendation so that you could get parole i said i don't want a letter with all due respect i appreciate your intentions but uh, i'm not appearing before parole i don't want to go out that way i'm not negotiating my innocence I said, I am willing to die in prison if they're not going to recognize that I'm an innocent man. And then came Nina, shortly thereafter, with this great idea of a pardon or a commutation from the governor. I said, no, nah. I said, I'm not interested in that. I, uh, that's not exoneration. She said, hold on. I got some nice tickets to the Yankees, great box seats. Wouldn't you want to go to a game with Filipito and, you know, uh, Man, she sold that shit to me immediately though, dude. She said, well, we still fight for your exoneration and we're going to, we're going to cut your name, but at least we'll get you out of here. So I said, all right, try it. So it was almost by Christmas. The depot security came that early. He would come like we were buddies and, he, and I was on a ladder painting and the depot security came and he said, hey Rod, get down from that ladder so the way he said it i thought I, I was in trouble i said damn what did i do so i get now i said what's up Deb?" he said uh get in my truck i said what happened what did i do he said you didn't do nothing get in the truck so i got in the truck i you can't get in the death's truck dude no inmate gets in no death truck so i knew something was was amiss when a deputy security tell you to get on his truck and then take you outside the jail to his office so once i seen that i was going outside the gate i said you're deaf He said, relax, everything is good. So we went to his office and there it is, the superintendent, the of administration, of programs, deputy, early and a lieutenant. So he says, sit on my chair. Man, that shit hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, what's up, Deb? He said, sit on my chair, go ahead. (laughs) So I sat on the desk chair. And the superintendent said, in all the years that I've been in corrections, I never had the privilege to do this. The governor of the state of New York wants to grant you a commutation.
1: So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. All oh, my friends love it. I love that it's KidSafe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe.
0: Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for best documentary feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists.
3: You get a shot. But the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk.
4: Thank you. Great Thank conversation. Thank you. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury
5: You could do whatever you want with my phone. Go ahead and dial wherever you want to dial. This is your phone. This is your office for today. The first phone call I made was to my son. I called my son and um I told Felipe. I said uh, I said he's over, dude. I said uh coming home. I called Nina and Nina already knew she's a bum. She didn't let me know, but she already knew. And uh, Zach knew too, and he's another bum. He didn't tell me either. So it was like a big bomb dropped on me. You know, I I didn't think a commutation would feel the way that felt, but to get out and be able to hold my son and, and see the city after almost three decades, see it and walk free and smell the air and get in a car and and do the things that we so much take for granted was amazing. To be restored back to some extent of humanity, to feel that sense of belonging, to sense that freedom that only comes from you doing what you want when you want to do it. Most people don't know what it feels like because they never lost their freedom. Freedom is a gift. It's the greatest gift any human being ever has. I, I am in eternal debt to the entire staff of the Innocence Project. Governor Cuomo also deserves some uh, gratitude from me. And um, the next step was even better, but this was a crucial moment in my life after spending 26 years and nine months in prison.
0: So the best was yet to come. And I'll never forget your sort of uh, homecoming lunch in New York City. I was sort of very blessed to be there for your first free hug with your son. I have some amazing photographs. I think I was the uh, designated photographer for that moment. (laughs) And it was just a type of moment that I think we live for all of us who work in this field. And of course, then... There's still more good news on a cold day in Queens, New York, we witnessed the formal exoneration.
3: Three years to the day after he got his clemency. <laughs> you know, December 30th is Felipe's lucky day, so watch out, Powerball people, because if he plays the lottery on that day, things may go his way.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that is
3: the and truth. I didn't plan it that way. It just happened. And it was pretty much the last official act from the outgoing administration of Richard Brown. Mr. Brown died in office uh, about six months before Felipe was exonerated, but One of his top aides, Bob Masters, agreed after Felipe was granted clemency. Bob Masters, who was one of the most senior officials in a very large DA's office, agreed to my pleading to have somebody with authority take a closer look at the case. And I spent about close to the better part of those three years working with him to dig up every last bit of paper that they could find and help them understand the significance of of what they saw by explaining and really opening up our files for the whole case to them. And on December 23rd of 2019, I finally got a call from Bob Masters that he agreed that there was a lot of evidence in that DA's file and in the police file that none of us had ever seen, that Felipe's trial lawyer certainly never had and that the jury never had, that convinced him that Felipe's right to a fair trial had been egregiously violated.
0: Okay. So they found a statement from Ramos taken by a Long Island Railroad detective with Ramos claiming that Felipe was with a black man when he allegedly returned the car. So that's a totally different story there. And then In front of Robert Masters, Ramos recanted his identification of Felipe, blaming pressure from police at the time. I mean, there was also a statement from a bar patron named William Perry that firmly stated that the couple had arrived in the black Monte Carlo, which undermined the entire theory about the white car seen by Saloni. And if that wasn't enough, one of the biggest red flags of all was that Detective Bizell had gained permission to arrest Felipe, get this, eight days before Ramos had changed his story from Pereira to Felipe. I mean, it's unfucking believable and it left the DA's office no choice.
3: Finally, Bob Masters agreed, and he had convinced the district attorney that throwing out Felipe's conviction and exonerating him was the right thing to do. And I was able to give Felipe a pretty good Christmas present I called him on Christmas Eve and said, uh, can you come to the office? And I couldn't tell him why I wanted him to come in. Cause he'd want to know what was going on. And, and so <laughs> what did I tell you? I think I said, I need you to look at some papers.
5: You need to sign need
3: to Sign some papers, come yeah. look at some papers, every typical lawyer excuse. And he was working at a hotel in Midtown and on the way home, he stopped off. And,
5: uh, when I got there, she's all smiley and, you know, being Nina, you know, oh, how you doing? What's up? And I said, "What's the documents? Can I see the documents?" She said, "Relax, you know, Santa Claus brought you a gift." And I said, "What gift?" Uh, she said, "Well, you finally got what you wanted." And I looked at Nina sideways, like, "Nah, don't drop this again." And uh, she said, "Well, on December thirtieth, you will be exonerated." Ah, man, my whole world turned upside down, dude.
3: In my then eighteen years of the Innocence Project. This was the first client that I'd ever gotten to tell in person that he was getting exonerated. I'd done a lot of joyful phone calls, but the first time, because he was a New Yorker and he was already free in body, if not in name, that I got to actually tell someone in my office and be there with him when he got to call all his family members and tell them the good news. So that was pretty special.
0: So now we get to the part of the show that everyone, especially me, looks forward to. And that part of the show is called Closing Arguments. And this is where, first of all, I thank each of you. Um, Nina Morrison, thank you so much for being on the show again.
3: Thanks, Jason. Great to be back.
0: And Felipe Rodriguez, thanks again for being here and sharing your story with us. Thank you very much. And now I'm gonna I'm gonna turn my mic off, kick back in my chair, close my eyes and Leave the mic on. Nina, why don't you go first? And then when you're done, just hand the mic off to Felipe. And then Felipe, you do the mic drop.
3: It's hard to know what to say to sum up or make meaning out of what Felipe went through. We do know a few things. One is that he never should have been arrested or charged in the first place, that there was so much evidence even at the time that made very clear that they had the wrong man. Another is that if police and prosecutors had turned over still more evidence that no one on the defense team and Felipe himself didn't know was there, he never would have been convicted. Fortunately, New York has since changed its laws on what's called pretrial discovery, meaning the universe of documents that you get, not because a prosecutor says, well, I think this is helpful to you, so I'm going to provide it and I'm legally obligated to provide it, but All of the documents collected in connection with an investigation, police reports and notes, now need to be turned over as a matter of right. So had these laws been in place at the time Felipe was charged, I like to think that he never would have been convicted. So we are grateful to the legislature and to the governor for enacting this discovery reform, as we call it, into law and for keeping the bill strong, because it will prevent more Felipe Rodriguez from going to prison for crimes they didn't commit.
5: So... I came out of prison on January 26, 2017. A week and a half later, Nina Morrison got me to go and walk into the president of Local 6 Hotel Trades Council Union, Mr. Peter Ward. He was really taken aback by what I've been through. And he said, look, if nobody wants to hire you, I'll make the call myself. And I became a hotel worker. And I just got laid off because of the COVID. But I was making good money, good health care. I got a great family. And it, Nina is the one responsible for me marrying Karen Rodriguez. Um, Nina has done so much for me. Nina is so intertwined in my home, in my life, in my future, in my past. It's amazing. I'm in a great position, even though with this COVID, you know, I hear people saying that, oh, we feel like we're in jail. They don't even know what jail is like. This is no way compared to jail. Trust me. I'm going to tell you something. People should be thanking COVID. COVID has given the people a chance to know their children, to know their wives, to know their mothers, to talk, to share moments with them. So... What I say to people is, I took prison and I made something good out of it. Let's take COVID and make something good out of it. I mean, sometimes it's stressful, you know, overwhelming with the kids, you know, because you're not used to it, but let's see the positive. I mean, prison is a dark place. I welcomed it. I used the tools that that was placed on my feet and I did something positive. We could do that during COVID. We we just got to take it one day at a time, you know, and the rest should be history, man.
0: Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One.